This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Jim Fallows, National Correspondent of the Atlantic, who will lead this session. Jim? Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Thank you all for coming here today. Thanks to our partners at UCSD and everybody who's watching this um, virtually through one medium or another. Um, You know the old joke, if you're a a parent of a number of children, they ask you which one's your favorite. In fact, they're all your favorites. Of course, when it comes to the sessions, the Atlantic meets the Pacific, they're all my favorites too. But I've been particularly looking forward to this one among the, the, the favorite sessions because the subjects we're going to discuss and the people we have to discuss them I think will be um, riveting to all of us. We have a fixed amount of time here because we want to leave in the break in time so that everybody can go to the lab tours later on. So I'm only going to give a very cursory intro to each one of our, our great panelists and then I'll lay out some of the questions we're going to discuss. What we're going to talk about is the next wave of creative destruction driven by technology in medicine. The things that are exciting about it, the things that might be problematic about it, uh, which parts of the world may be helped or hurt, which kinds of, of people. We know that as you look through the long history of medicine, it's often technological leaps which make the greatest difference in how people uh, deal, whether, whether it's public health discoveries a couple of centuries ago or anesthesia or immunizations or the revolutions of the last century. Am I right thinking that the last century is when we've seen the greatest extensions in human lifespan? Of, of, of ever before. So sure, it, from 47, uh, yeah. the eternal last century, to yeah. 79. So it's a pretty big jump yep. in one century. And, and so we have now all the, techno- the, the prospects of the digital revolution and other allied technologies are going to change the way we do, um, we live, and we, are, we are, get sick and, and get cured. We know, too, and this is near the end of my setup, that these technical breakthroughs have been, of course, blessings to all of humanity. Who wouldn't want to go back to the era before anesthesia, et cetera, or before immunization? And yet there are different complications they create, the complications of an aging population, the complications, above all, of cost, different moral, uh, moral dilemmas that new kinds of technology to, uh, present. To tell us about this new landscape, we are very lucky to have Dr. Eric Toppel and, uh, and Don Jones. Dr. Topol, as you know, is the, uh, is the director of the Scripps Translational Science Institute. I could spend the rest of our time giving you all of the background of the things that he has been responsible for creating here in San Diego and, and around the world. Um, I, will, I will say that he's, uh, I'll just leave it at saying that GQ, no higher authority exists, has named him one of the 12 rock stars of science. So, uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. And, and, and his book, which is available in the bookstore outside, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, is published this year. Um, Donald Jones, who is the uh, Vice President of Global Strategy and Market Development for Qualcomm Life, 
has been a partner in the technological ramifications of this uh, scientific uh, revolution around the world. He, while GQ did not say he was a rock star of science, the San Diego Transcript has been one of San Diego's top influentials, and he's worked with Dr. Topol a number of projects has a bachelor's degree in biology and bioengineering from UCSD, Juris Doctor from University of San Diego, and MBA from UC Irvine. Let me start with each of you, just asking you to sort of lay out the landscape. First, Dr. Topol, then Don Jones, of for those of us who are not in the business you're in, would you spend a minute or two saying what's happening that's most exciting, what is it going to mean, and what are the main things you're worried about? Great. So thanks. I think the biggest uh, change that we're seeing now is uh, the digitizing of human beings, which we never really had that opportunity before. Uh, This is um, an extraordinary um, impact of the digital world coming into the medical cocoon and uh, essentially enabling this uh, phenomenal shakeup of how medicine is uh, and care is rendered today. So, um, you know, I brought a couple of things to kind of demonstrate that. And I, we're, obviously, we're not really concentrating on the genomic side, but that be ability to digitize one's biology through omics is part of the story. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm sure Larry Smart will talk about that more tomorrow if, of himself. But what, I, a couple of things I show you is, you know, used to be, uh, of course, as you already pointed out, this great progression of how we would care for people with diabetes. And still, that predominantly, for those people who measure their blood glucose, they have to do finger sticks. Mm-hmm. But now there's a technology that you can just turn on your phone. You wear a sensor like this on your abdomen or your arm, and it's 131, and, uh, oops, and uh, turn it on. And my blood glucose right at this moment is 103, which isn't too bad. Uh, but what, what is really, uh, because of just having eaten lunch, but what's really interesting about this is, <laughs> is if you have this with you and you're going over to the, the place outside that had the churros, yep. you might not have a churro. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you know your glucose is going to shoot way up. And so it's a real, this is the sort of thing of this constant feedback loop. And we're talking about not just diabetes, who, people who have it, which is uh, 70 million people in the U.S. We're talking about on the globe a billion people who are in this pre-diabetic uh, category who some of them, about 3% per year, migrate cross the line to become diabetic. The other thing, as a cardiologist, and I, I, I don't mean to take uh, away uh, Don Thunder on this d- device, but just to show that this stuff really works, um, and that is the uh, ability to do a cardiogram on a phone. I mean, this is a dream, and it's real now. But the idea is that you would just take uh, an attachment to your phone, and uh, it could be this kind of credit card version like this, which has sensors on the back, two sensors that you put your fingers on to make a circuit with your heart, or in this case, the, the uh, case of the phone. And just um, once you get through the password uh, stuff, um, you can then pull up your app uh, that does a cardiogram. And uh, what's great about this is, it is for people who have a, a spell of dizziness, mm-hmm. lightheadedness, their heart pounding, you just put your fingers on and you can see in my cardiogram. And you can also not only detect the rhythm of the heart, but whether or not there's... You, should, you want to do yeah, yours? And so if you happen to be a cardiologist, you can read your EKG there. Yeah, right? well, why don't we do yours while we're here? Good. So sure. My, my dad was a cardiologist. He can be reading down from so heaven. So if you just put a finger on each sensor okay. like that, uh-huh, and let's see what it looks like. It gives you a second to... Yeah, there it goes. Well, you've got a nice, normal pacemaker rhythm, good heart rate. You exercise a lot? I've, uh, I've run marathons way faster than Paul Ryan. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, this is, this is great. Now, see, if you weren't feeling right, and this, yeah. is, the, this is the key about the sh- change in medicine, you weren't feeling right, you just press this button, and it, would, it sends to get an yeah. automatic algorithm detection you know, without bypassing a doctor to tell you what is your rhythm mm-hmm. and whether there's something wrong with your cardiogram. So these sorts of things, whether it's you know, refracting the eyes or skin lesion or looking in an ear for a, ch- a child to see whether they have an infection, this is changing the way medicine is um, routed today. And some people have even questioned what is the role of physicians in the future, which is really striking. And that tells you yeah. we're getting into some serious creative destruction. And that, that is a question I'll ask you in just a moment. Don Jones, so tell us about the complementary developments in the data world, the hardware world that are enabling or impeding what we've been talk, hearing about. Well, I'm, I'm going to just extend on the, uh, the storyline here because um, if you all think about 1995, plus or minus a few years, when people started doing their own internet searches on the internet around healthcare, and then walking into their physician having researched whatever they thought was wrong. We're going to be entering a stage when you bring your own physiological data to your physician, and I can tell you we're already doing it as a family. Um, Larry's done it extensively. Um, but my son has, uh, <laughs> my son has a uh, cardiac uh, issue, and... Um, after about the 15th time of being ordered a, an event monitor, which is this little box with tons of wires, and it's a Rube Goldberg contraption that really hasn't changed in design for 40 years, um, we laughed and said, you know, for the 15th time, at great cost to the healthcare system, you haven't discovered anything yet. Why are we doing this again? And they said, because, well, this is how we do things. And I said, tell you what, I've got access to a lot of great technologies. I'll just bring you the data. And I can put on a smart cardiac band-aid, and I actually put my son through three different uh, technologies. Uh, I think Eric's got one here. He can wear them day in and day out. He can go in the shower with them. There's no wires. There's no box. There's no giveaway to his friends at school that he's on a cardiac monitor. And we get 24-7 data over many, many weeks' worth of time, which the event monitors don't, don't do. So what, what does that mean to... So that was, that's a change you're going to see. It's a change of bringing things in and essentially demanding that your healthcare practitioner interact with you on that data, which is going to be a challenge for them. Not all of them are going to want to do that. Uh, and so that's going to be an interesting uh, uh, point in your healthcare cr- um, experience with your physician as you are contemplating whether I'm going to ch- be changing physicians soon. Um, the other thing that is uh, made, made home as a parent, my son has a events of tachycardia where his heart sp- speeds up in excess of 200 beats per minute. Um, And it's controllable with a drug. And it's also controllable by some other tricks of the trade that you can try, like putting your head in ice and standing on your head or diving into cold water, all of which he knows how to do, and he has literally done. So the last time this happened this summer in in, uh, Montana, he literally at 1230 at night drove off of my uh, brother's balcony into the lake at 1230 at night to try and cause this to stop. And when it didn't work, we got the phone call at one in the morning as my brother and sister-in-law were driving him to the hospital. And he said, don't worry, Dad, I've already taken care of everything. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, I've used my AliveCore device, which Eric just demonstrated, and, we, and Sabra, my sister-in-law, has gotten the nurse's email at the ER, and I sent them an email saying, here's my ECG and my heart rate, and I sent them a note saying, please have my adenosine drip ready for me when I arrive. <laughs> This is unprompted. Nobody told him that was what to do. He just did it. 
as a 17-year-old. So that's a little bit of insight into the future as the information becomes more transparent to you, you understand how to interact with it, and you, and you begin making demands as a consumer on the healthcare system to interact with you now that you're a more knowledgeable consumer. And I think that, at a bit high level, is the most important trend that we're seeing. So, so I am a big technological optimist by nature, but my role on this panel is going to be the, hey, wait a minute guy. <laughs> and so what you, you are talking about sounds really great. And yet, have any of you been to an actual doctor recently? I mean, you fill out the forms and paper every time you go. And What is going to make what is now the most hidebound part of American life uh, embrace well, all the things you're talking about? Well, you're, the experience of going to the doctor today in the United States is unsettling. The average time for a return visit is seven minutes. The average wait time exceeds 60 minutes. During those seven minutes, because now American doctors are trying to fulfill a meaningful use criteria of electronic records, they're typically typing on a keyboard. Yep. You don't even have eye contact. Yep. So this is not a very fulfilling experience. But it could be replaced, most of these visits, with uh, a, a video chat, uh, electronic connects, uh, virtual visits. And then one of the biggest things happened last week, uh, this project, Open Notes, which was uh, uh, sponsored by Robert Wood Johnson, and it was published in Annals of Internal Medicine. And for all the years, physicians were not willing to give their office notes to patients, even though you'd think they ought to be owned by the patient. Uh, but no, not, not with the medical paternalism, you know, the, uh, the medical priesthood. And so the problem was that uh, this was, uh, even the physicians that participated in the study at three centers in Boston and, and Seattle um, and in Geisinger, they were uh, circumspect about this, but they were convinced, and the patients loved it, and it made them be much more adherent to treatments. Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea is democratization of all this information, which is only happening you know, because we have this digitized. So I think that this is a whole new day in how medicine and healthcare can go forward, and that's what one of the you know, recent uh, findings that was pretty surprising, particularly to the doctors who didn't really want to participate. And to extend this question to, to, to Don, if we have, we have innovations racing ahead on two fronts, we have the whole digital revolution itself, we have all the medical discoveries that are making possible the things you're talking about, and yet we have this sociological, political, anthropological situation of the, the medical establishment, how will these, the two revolutions in, in technology and medicine affect this? Third? How do you see this actually happening so that these innovations will, will be uh, available to most people. Well, we're starting to see the beginnings of entrepreneurial efforts that are going to essentially force some changes in services being delivered. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, there's a company called ZocDoc, which has several mil million, now actually close over three million users. That, and this is a self-help application that allows you to make your own doctor's appointments. So you look up your doctor on your, your iPhone or your smartphone and find the appointments that are available and book the time. And this saves you from having to call and talk to the front desk receptionist, get put on hold, and negotiate for a time, which is never obviously convenient. Um, so now just fast forward ahead with me a little bit. And your doctor says, you know, we really need to get a CT scan or an MRI. Here's the card, the business card of the center we like to use down the street. You know, I go golfing with the guy down there that owns it. Um, <laughs> And you look and I go, well, I know I'm going to have to go through that same process. Why don't I just go on my handy-dandy little smartphone and find out when I can get a CT or an MRI at the center at the time and location? And how about the price that's the best available? 
So now, can we put e- can we turn the MRIs and CTs and imaging scans in, uh, into an eBay marketplace? Absolutely. The technology is here today for it. Is that going to be done by the traditional healthcare providers? Absolutely not. It's going to be done to them. And, and um, by, by whom? <laughs> by by entrepreneurs, by um, by Silicon Valley, by um, and and frankly by the payer community, the empl- the self-insured employers, and the large em- large uh, payers who are beginning to going to use market-driven forces to help collapse some of the inefficiencies in delivery and the cost structure. Do you agree? I agree, but there's one element that's missing here. I think it's really important to emphasize in in, in the way that information needs to flow to the public, Mm -hmm. consumer base. Don brings up this imaging story, which in this country is a mess. We overuse uh, ionized radiation, namely um, PET scans, nuclear scans, CAT scans, as if they're going to be going out of style. Now, the problem is we don't tell any of our patients uh, how many MSVs they're going to get when they go for one of these images. No, nobody get, knows that. And in fact, in cardiology, where I, uh, an area I know, uh, they wind up, uh, most cardiologists do a nuclear scan every year if someone who's had heart disease. That's equivalent to 2,000 chest X-rays. And what we're doing now, most projections suggest that we're inducing cancer in 2 to 3% of the population through medical imaging. So this is the kind of thing where it's the, it's the right of the individual to say, if you want me to get that scan, do I really need it? And secondly, how many MSVs am I going to be exposed to? Because I got this Geiger counter from birth, and I'm keeping track of that because that's what's going to be a determinant of whether I get uh, imaging-induced cancer. Um, I will not ask you to respond to, but I will simply put on the table the fact that having watched politics over the last several decades, I am sobered by the difficulty of changing the medical system Mm. from outside. Mm. But I'll I'll just say that. I'll skip to a a different question. Um, People already have lots of information that would make them healthier. People shouldn't be overweight, but they are. They should exercise, but they don't. They shouldn't eat churros, but they do. Uh, Why will this... Why will this kind of information be different from the knowledge about nutrition that's available to people now, for example? Well, th- this, you're bringing up the, the potential stumbling block here, which is changing behavior. What this does is it provides that feedback loop for people. And I have been impressed, uh, you know, for blood pressure. Most of my patients have high blood pressure, whereby now they get hundreds of readings, and they're looking at a chart that makes it really simple on one screen, and they are much more adherent. In fact, they're making the diagnosis, just like Don's son. My blood pressure is not right in the evenings or on you know, Monday morning, every, all the rest of the time. You know, that medicine's not working, and they can give me the statistics. And so you're getting data to them, but the question is, will it durably change behavior? When you know every calorie that you take in mm-hmm. and expend... Will that change the way you eat in the future? And so this, these are some unknowns, and, and it could be that we don't change behavior but transiently, and that wouldn't be good. And you change it for some people. Don, what do you think? Well, I think this is an opportunity where we're going to see some of the previous speakers' thoughts about gaming in medicine mm-hmm. apply, entertainment, digital media applied uh, into healthcare to help create an engagement. That's certainly one of the big, exciting areas. Uh, a couple um, examples. There's a... Um, uh, a nice application for young kids with diabetes to get them to be compliant with their diabetes, and it's a game. It's much like uh, Farmville, only it, the kids ha- play the role of being a little vampire, and it's got that edge to it that mom and dad will hate. 
except the kids get rewarded for collecting blood, which of course they have to do. And the game has elements in it for, for non-diabetic kids, so literally the entire class can play. So you know, whether it's that kind of solution that helps increase compliance and therefore behavioral change and gets more engagement, we've yet, yet to see what actually is going to work. Uh, I think one of the things that's most obvious is no one solution works for everyone in healthcare, and there are no tricks in the physician's bag that works for everyone. So we're going to have to try lots and lots of things on the engagement side, behavioral change. But the biggest opportunity over the next decade, um, as we see kind of the consumerism reach into the digital medicine and the sensor technology come together, is the, apply, is the application of digital media. And if you all want to have a really fun example that you can all go get today and just kind of see how digital media can play out in medicine in, in a way that's purely, at this point, just purely fun, but I, wa- I want you to think about how you can overlay really important information in a similar scenario. You can go to a drugstore and buy a box of Muppet Band-Aids from J&J, and you can download an application, an augmented reality application onto your phone. You can put the Band-Aid on, put Kermit, Kermit on, hold your phone over Kermit, and Kermit will jump to life and start singing and dancing, and you can do things on your phone with Kermit, or Miss Piggy, or any of the other characters. And you can begin to see how information can be laid over top of a picture in much the same way that Larry Schmar was talking about early of living in an augmented reality life using Google Glasses. So that's a very simple one. It's here today. It's a great business model for J&J because the kids obviously want every single Band-Aid in the box. (laughs) So it works out beautifully there, but you can see it uh, potentially apply in much more serious or informed ways. I'm going to invite questions in a couple of minutes. I have one, just one or two more questions for you all. There have been some medical technological innovations that have radically reduced costs, like immunization, some that have radically increased the amount of potential spending on, on medical uh, technology. What is the balance in these new things you're talking about between things that will save money and those that will increase it to 50% of GDP on health care? No, that's a, a very uh, critical point because most technologies in medicine have increased costs. But getting back to Don's point is that once you have the data digitized, whether it's gamified or whether it's used by employers to try to reduce their employee costs, and that could be a big incentive. So one of the things that we started at Scripps was to use and our hotspotters, the ones that are consuming the most uh, resources, to get them sensors and to test whether or not by getting them, whether it's the cardiogram or the glucose or the blood pressure, those pe- the right sensors for the right people, whether that will reduce costs by having that data and avoiding emergency room visits and extra office visits and the cumulative costs uh, that uh, can run up very quickly. So that's one of the things that is lacking so far is taking this uh, opportunity, which is you know quite extraordinary, and showing that it can actualize reduction of costs. Now, in the U.S. it doesn't work well because the doctor gets paid lots of things and they don't want to use these things because they don't know code. There's right. no reimbursement. In Brazil and India and China, these things are taken off uh, at a clip that is you know, much more what you would expect when there's no misalignment of, of incentives. The cost equation is really interesting because historically in the U.S. we've looked at the cost to the payer as really the only thing that counted, the, who's paying the bill, and not holistically in the kind of a 360 analysis of, of the, the cost benefits to all the players, and to, including the, uh, the patient, the patient's family. And I'll, I'll share, share with you an example in India. The uh, three top telco carriers in India now sell, these are the wireless companies, the AT&Ts and Verizons of India, now sell physician visits by, by premium phone numbers. So literally, you pay for the visit, and you get to the physician by p- 
dialing a phone number. And there's no more discussion about payment or credit, just the fact you dialed the phone number, you got deducted from your phone. It doesn't matter whether you have a prepaid phone or a postpaid phone, you've paid for the physician visit. And the, the carriers have teamed up with large physician practice in India to offer this. This has essentially gone from non-existent service to 50,000 visits a day by a physician in almost no time at all, less than a year. And um, you can imagine that more and more services will be built on top of this. Well, why is this so important? The import- so it's so important because of the avoided costs of tra- transportation. I've got to get on my ox cart and go three days to, to the hospital to go see the doctor when all I need to, may need to know is which drug should I pick up at the pharmacy or what, are, what uh, treatment should I uh, self-apply. So that's, that's a, a big piece of the equation. And then lost wages. And so, and that's not just lost wages of the patient, it could be lost wages of the family that has to accompany them. So that's just one very simple example of how turning the entire system kind of upside down using very simple technology that's already there, and really the important technology here is the ability to collect the fee in a very efficient way, and then disperse it to the appropriate, uh, appropriate party. So you'll see these kinds of systems being built on. They'll obviously be customized by region and by country and, and, and by services. But I fully expect in India, because of the low cost of, of the way consumer electronics are built and the volumes are built in, that in India they will very much have more than a mercury thermometer and a telephone when they call their doctor, even in the poorest villages. They'll actually be calling their doctor with multiple vital signs, electrocardiograms, etc., because they're available so inexpensively, even if they have to be shared, if the devices have to be shared in a village. One more question quickly, which is many of the the innovations you're talking about have great preventative power, reducing people's getting diabetes, high blood pressure. Are there there possibilities for dealing with the increasing challenge of the diseases of longevity, whether it's dementia or or all the other uh, afflictions of people who survive what would have killed them 20 or 30 years ago now are living long enough to endure? I think those are coming more out of the genomic side, which is you know, st- really part of the continuum. Whether it's 0-1 or ACTG, it's still digital. But you know, we, s- we just recently saw, in the case of uh, dementia, uh, a protective variant, mm-hmm. which can be mimicked by drugs. Only one in 200 of us here carry that variant that is sevenfold protection, not just against dementia, but even any cognitive decline mm-hmm. through the 90s or age 100 plus. When we all like to have something like that? But there may be a drug that if we started early enough in life could simulate that. And so that's where I think we might see some breakthroughs. These, the, the, the idea of being able to prevent late onset diseases like cancer will probably only get uh, going more in the embedded sensor era. Everything we talked about today is the wearable stuff, but the embedded sensor in the bloodstream, when you have your bloodstream under surveillance at all times and it's talking to your phone, that creates opportunities. As we'll hear more about tomorrow from Larry, I'm sure. Yeah, well, basically you know when there's some DNA that's free in the blood that shouldn't be there from a cancer cell, the first Mm -hmm. cancer cell, or you know there's an antibody that's going to attack a part of your body, like your pancreas or whatever, before you ever have symptoms. And that is a powerful way to prevent some of the critical um, uh, illnesses of man. So uh, we're going to see these two things absolutely collide, and we've actually got a project coming up that that will demonstrate this. So what most of us don't realize when we go to the doctor and he hands us a sample prescription or writes one and hands it to us and says, try this, what he's really saying is, you're the guinea pig, and we're going to start here, and if it doesn't work, we'll go on to something else, and we'll just keep going down until the guinea pig gets better, uh, and you're the guinea pig. 
So um, the, one of the solutions that we've coming up in a trial comes from a company out of the UK called DNA Electronics, which has a cell phone-like device, which combined with a cheek swab, so a little swab in your cheek, done while you're at the doctor's office, before he, writes the pres- he or she writes the prescription, will test to see whether the drug he's about to give you is actually going to be metabolized by you and it'll actually work for you. And that's an example where the DNA side, the genomic side, and the digital electronic cell phone side actually converge and come out together with a solution. Questions. If you raise your hand, a microphone will come to you. So, so um, why don't you just, uh, so here, this gentleman in the blue shirt with the white collar, that will move from side to side. Yes, I have a question regarding, do you th- see a day when you'll have a, a smartphone where you could prick your finger for a blood sample, stick it on the smartphone, and it'll give you analysis, complete testing, so you don't have to go to labs all the time? Sure. The lab on a chip using microfluidics already exists, that whole model today, where you can do everything from a thyroid hormone to liver function tests. It, you know, basically, that is, technically, it's doable. And it's been set up. But what we really want is not have to use, do the finger stick. Because that is, everyone has had to try to finger stick. It's, it, there's a little pain involved there. Plus, you can't just keep doing finger sticks all the time. It's, uh, it's expensive and inconvenient. And it's not good for public you know, appearances. So um, what you'd like is, like, there's a company that has a patch that you can wear and do all your electrolytes. And if we can do these things non-invasively, that would be even better. But you're right on as far as uh, lab on a chip, lab on a phone. And by the way, none of these things would be possible without this phenomenal digital infrastructure. We weren't ready for this until now. Now that there's more cell phones in the world than there are toilets or toothbrushes, we're ready for something big like this. So, the, the, so, so whether saliva, breath, they're all coming. I actually have a $10 million prize out to create the Tricorder run by the XPRIZE Foundation. Um, I actually believe your particular solution of the testing will actually be commercialized by about 2014. We'll start seeing commercial versions uh, available for blood-based testing. But there's going to be all kinds of testing, and ultimately it's going to move in the direction of being as passive as possible. So this gentleman here has the microphone, and just uh, if the microphone people would just choose people while, while one question is being asked, if you just bring the microphone to somebody else. Yes. My name is Malin Burnham. I have a question, but first I would like to ask uh, Dr. Topol if he would explain to this crowd your Welderay, Welderay project and why and how and what's happening. And since I gave you five do- <coughs> vials of my blood about four years ago, I'm wondering what you have to tell me. Right. <laughs> well, you, you may not have read the consent form, so, but the data doesn't go back to you. It's used for science sake. Now, uh, it's a long consent form, as they usually are. Uh, but, Malin, the Welderly study gets back to a question James was asking earlier. That is, uh, we have 1,500 people who have exceeded age 80, average age 89, who've never been sick and are on no medications, and we're now doing whole genome sequencing. And it took a while to get that done because it was several million dollars worth of in-kind sequencing through a company up in Northern California, Complete Genomics. We'll have that data. We got half of it back already. We'll have almost all of it back in the next couple of months, and we'll be able to analyze it. That's where you find these protective variants like the Alzheimer's, and we expect there'll be a whole lot more. And so, you know, we're finally getting to a point where getting the whole genome sequencing has become affordable, possible, accurate enough, and we're just at the cusp, hopefully, of... I wish we were the ones who found the Alzheimer's uh, protective variant, uh, but uh, hopefully we'll find some other things. Uh, yes, over here. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, Stu Krantz. Uh, so in the spirit of uh, realizing that the technology is here, it's going to be here, uh, and moving quickly and, 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 and improving health care, what do you recommend to the individual consumer? Uh, I, uh, I make an appointment. It takes me months to get into the doctor. I show up at the doctor. He's not looking at me. Uh, what can I tell him uh, if I realize that this technology is here to make a change to help improve my health? My response would be, you know, you should fire your doctor. Yeah, but you should but get that's, one. that's a huge pain in the neck. I know, do. I know. Well, I mean, basically what we're talking about is this era of the information and data flow, which was in the doctor's domain, is now moving fully to yours. You're going to have this, and it's not anymore the doctor knows best necessarily. And a lot of these things we've been talking about, of course, bypass the doctor completely in terms of analysis. So you're going to have a whole lot more information you never had before, and you need somebody who is basically in tune with that and more apt to be younger physicians, but even among those older docs, if they are, have enough plasticity to, to move to a new era, which is, that's the problem, is that you know, the, the traditional medicine has been uh, you know, the, this paternalism and unwilling to connect to the electronic digital world, and that has to change. And I actually think that you know, this may be uh, what you would consider a tough analogy, since you're supposed to be the devil's advocate <laughs> here today, but you know, when the printing press changed the world in the 1400s, I would liken this as a smartphone and tablet are going to change for medical reading, going to change and empower you, take charge uh, and own data like you never had before. Don, do you want to uh, chime in? Yeah, just a couple of tests that I apply. One is, is questions when I'm looking for physicians. Do they email? Are my lab tests available online? Can I communicate f- through a variety of different communications modalities, not just email? Can I text? Can I do other modalities? How much of my medical record is going to be exposed to me? Those are all pre-criteria, and I would suggest from a consumer's perspective, you should tell the doctor's Pointly, that's what you're looking for, and if they don't offer it, you're switching. Again, I will say good luck, but we'll leave that. <laughs> so is there a microphone over here? Yes. Hi, Dave Proffer. A little left field, but I was just curious. Uh, I followed Oscar Petoris for a little while, if you're familiar with the Summer Olympics. Uh, the augmented human in sports, I mean, the, the bad side with, uh, with Lance Armstrong, but I'd be curious your thoughts on when that becomes, uh, you know, the augmented human, Steve Austin, is an issue and what... Yes, well, you're bringing up the ethical boundaries of a lot of these things. And whether it's in sports or whether you're screening uh, the, the sperm or, you know, all sorts of things you can do from um, this, this uh, information era that's expanding, uh, how could it be used in the wrong way or, you know, basically pushing the envelope maybe too much? So um, this is a concern. On the other hand, there's things like, like in the Olympics, a lot of the athletes were using sleep monitoring to improve their... Uh, performance. And that's certainly fair game. And in fact, the, the women's cycling team, uh, Don and I saw the video, is pretty striking. The women's cycling team of U.S. at the Olympics attribute sleep monitoring to how they beat the Australians and got the silver medal. So this question is how far do you go? Uh, how much is it contrived? How much is it just you know, getting your body in tune with you know, basically getting that feedback to be a, a better athletic performer? We have time for two or three more questions. There's a sign you're holding up for me, but because of the lights, I can't see what it says. So if, if you could... Uh, okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, yes, in the balcony. Sorry, yes, I can't see up there either. But yes, you may, uh, the balcony, you may speak. Yes, um, question I had uh, goes back um, 
to a couple prior questions, and it also ties together not only the uh, topic in this session, but for the whole day, the whole idea of distributed information is going further out to the edges. It's not as centralized as it used to be. But um, having gone to law school, as you have, Don, I'm curious what you think about the lawyers and, and the malpractice and the potentiality for that throwing a monkey wrench into all these ideas. So I've got a mixed response to the legal sides. I've never practiced law, but I certainly was part of my life for, for a while. Um, but on the uh, you know the negative side of the legal pressure on the healthcare system is um, defensive medicine and over ordering tests and over ordering uh, procedures because if you basically under the theory that if you do it you'll be in a better position position if there's a bad result than if you didn't do something. The, the, but there's also a flip side to that, and you can get into as much trouble by not doing something. So let me give you a very simple example. Let's say you've collected your ECG. You've done whatever it is. You went out, figured it out on your own, collected it, came into your doctor and said, here, I've collected a month's worth of data for you. Will you take it? And your doc has the response that you probably expect today, which is, no, I don't know what to do with that. But buried in there was actually a critical arrhythmia and he ignored it, and you gave it to him. That same lawyer is gonna attack that side of the equation as well. So I would say that the, the, if, if you can put a positive spin on the lawyer side, the lawyers are gonna be an important part of actually pushing us forward. They're gonna be, a, unfortunately, a negative part of pushing us backwards at the same time, but I'm just pointing out that there's, there's a push forward too at the same time here. I had this experience. I used to be the chief operating officer of the largest ambulance company in the world, American Medical Response. And um, for many, many years in the late 80s and early 90s, we started something called, um, uh, uh, I can't think of what we called it. We actually gave people first aid instructions over the phone when they called in, dialing 911, pre-arrival instructions. And it was considered absolutely negligent at the time that if you hadn't gone to a Red Cross first aid class, it was, a, it was a bad idea to try and tell mom how to give mouth to mouth to her non-breathing baby over the phone. Literally, that was the attitude in America. I being in a position to, to uh, make a decision and not ask the lawyers said, no, we're just gonna, we're gonna try it, we're gonna do it. We're gonna give the instructions out. I can't imagine that it's worse trying something than not trying anything at all. So we did that and we were, held up as negligent examples by every fire chiefs and government officials all over the country. Um, but we did it anyway. We basically just ignored the rest of the world because there really wasn't any consequences to us other than people saying nasty things about us, mainly because they didn't want to do it. But eventually, the case became forward. A lawyer got hold of a case that came forward, and, um, and essentially, overnight, it became negligent not to give pre-arrival instructions. So the, the, the pendulum can swing, and I think the same thing is going to happen in many of these cases. It's going to be negligent to, a, it's going to go from being, I don't want to deal with this data, to be negligent not to deal with the data, and the, it'll, it'll go on and on and on. So I would, I would say lawyers are a necessary evil. So we can have two questions they are short or one of it's long. It's up to you. So <laughs> you're next and then, then over here. For you. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm Daniel Weiss. I'm a local physician endocrinologist, so... I'm into technology, into data. I think it's great. I kind of feel like as a physician, I'm a little bit of a young dinosaur in a way. Since I have my own medical practice, I can make it as I want. But we kind of have our hands tied behind our back, and we get a bad rap. There is a lot of data out there. My question kind of segues with what you were broaching on. So much data, you know, the science is kind of learning in front of the public. 
Same with physicians. How, what are some of the policy and infrastructure changes that need to happen to be able to make the best of both worlds? Well, I mean, the biggest thing is being able to filter, process that data so it becomes practical. So the blood pressure example I gave when taking hundreds of readings and it's all summarized on a nice color screen on a phone or a tablet, that has to be done with all this data. And some people, of course, will be having you know, multiple you know, aggregate sensor uh, feedback. So that's the missing link right now. A lot of, there's a lot of great sensors, but the ability to make that information, which can be a flood of data, practical, is lagging a little bit behind. And that's just, a lot of that's just a software story that, that needs to be built. My, my dad was a small-town doctor. He used to say the worst nightmare was somebody with a subscription to Reader's Digest. Could they come in there with <laughs> diagnoses of every disease? Yes, uh, I think you have the honor of last question. Uh, thank you. Um, just a little shift. We've been talking about gathering data and using it in medicine, and I'm interested also in another extension, which is gathering data and using it in research so that we can develop better treatments. And you did mention one thing in the exchange with Mr. Burnham that you know, he'd given you four vials of blood and you said, oh, but you didn't read the consent forms. And actually, I'm worried about this part of our system not moving fast enough. And I'm just wondering, um, for those who conduct research, how can we get the best out of um, IRBs and consent and not, but still open it up enough so that not only can we collect the data, but then free the data right. so that we can learn from it? Well, you, the, the key word was open. And this open science movement that we need to foster and so, for example, you know, we've been talking about the war on cancer for a long time, Nixon on. We could make tremendous headway just in that particular uh, uh, category of illnesses if we were to pull all the data. A lot of people are now getting sequence of their tumor, and then there are all these different treatments. And if we were to get worldwide open science of all that data, we could make enormous differences much faster. But if it's kept in discrete labs to, be, to compete who's going to publish it first, uh, or if they ever do publish it, that's where we're going to lose a lot of time. So these big uh, data bases, uh, using on, on cancer as an example, that's what we need to do is just open things up, pool data, and really you know, make that work to, to advance things. It's not just at the level, I agree with you, consent forms in the United States are just really holding us back because we have to have these 8 to 12 pages. Hardly anyone ever reads them. They don't know what's in them. And you know, this is, this is a, an impediment to getting the uh, enrollees in research projects. Final word from Don Jones. I think one of the areas that we're seeing a blank sheet of paper is physiological data um, that is collected from on your body, in your body, or around your body. And it's blank because historically it's only been collected episodically when you go to the hospital or to the doctor. So that blank sheet of paper offers the possibility of changing the rules. And we've got a project at Qualcomm where we're doing just that, where we've created a cloud-based cloud platform that different medical device manufacturers can be, put their devices on, and then the, the information can be aggregated into different dashboard models, whether they be for the consumer or for the physician, across multiple manufacturers, across multiple kinds of data. And what we chose early on was we said, if you want to be on our platform, you have to agree to an open data concept. You have to agree to contribute. And understand this. We're going to go to the buyers of this platform, the hospitals, the large medical groups, the disease management companies, and let them know they're going to have the flexibility of choosing whatever devices they want in whatever combinations they want, which is a very, very powerful statement. So your customers are going to want this kind of open environment. You're going to want to be on it because they want to be on it. And then finally, um, the consumers need the ability to, to repurpose their data. 
They may have a date. A simple example is you've got a weight scale from a medical condition, but you then signed up for, with Jenny Craig for their weight plan, and you've got your iPhone app, Jenny Craig iPhone app, and you want to use the scale information on that. Why, why would you want to go get a different scale for your Jenny Craig app? You'd want to repurpose the information you already have. Well, that only happens with an open data platform with consumer in charge of their data. So we're basically trying that right now, and I can, I'm fortunate, to, I'm, it's comfortable to say the device manufacturers, while many of them balked when we first talked to them, when we explained our view of the future and the fact they would get cut out of the marketplace by the buyer if they were not in an open data platform, agreed and, and have been moving on to an open platform. We have to break now, so there's time for the lab tours, but please join me in giving sincere thanks to Eric Kubel and Don Jones. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.